These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Our guest today is Rafi Salazar. Rafi is the author of Better Outcomes, a guide for humanizing healthcare. He's also the host for the podcast, The Better Outcomes Show, exploring the possibilities of a new healthcare. Welcome to Healthcare and Toad, Rafi. Hey, thanks, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, Healthcare and Toad is really telling the untold stories of individuals and their career paths and also, you know, their ideas and dreams about healthcare. Um, and so why don't you tell us your journey in your own healthcare career? Sure. So I like to tell people I'm an occupational therapist by trade. I like to tell people that occupational therapy kind of found me. <laughs> so I had grown up, my grandfather was a vascular surgeon and I knew that in the back of my mind, I wanted to be involved in healthcare. He he started practicing down in Costa Rica where he was from, moved up here to the United States and had a little private practice. And I remember going to see him in the summers and really just valuing and seeing just the power of having a good relationship, the, the power of a relationship between a, a clinician that really cared and a patient or client that really needed the services and, and what was able to unfold because of just him being a caring person in healthcare. So I knew I wanted to be in healthcare, um, but I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> and then the summer before my senior year, I actually fell. I was fishing at the river, fell and landed on a bottle that somebody had left, I guess, thrown in the, in the river. And I cut my hand open and that led me into uh, emergency surgery 24 hours later. And then I was in an OT clinic, an occupational therapy clinic for two to three times a week for the balance of the summer before my senior year and even into my senior year a little bit. And the therapist that worked with me was just was great. Another kind of person that just really connected with me, built a relationship with me and then used that relationship to kind of motivate me to get back to doing the things that I, I wanted to do that were meaningful to me. So getting out of school in that senior year and kind of looking at, okay, I wanted to be in healthcare. Well, what was it going to be after having spent that long in an occupational therapy clinic in a hand therapy clinic? I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And that kind of set me on my career path in healthcare, if you would. And uh, from there, I went to the medical college of Georgia, got my graduate degree and got licensed in occupational therapy. And then have kind of bounced around and jumped here, there, and everywhere since then. <laughs> well, that's many of us uh, get into healthcare because of our own experiences, right? And so you could yeah. see that, you know, going through that. But you said something that was really important that I want, I know um, that you're very dedicated to. And that's, you know, having really patient-centered care, really where uh, we need to really help uh, people who are seeking healthcare to be good consumers. And also that means, you know, really engaging with your provider and not being afraid yeah. uh, to really ask the questions and sometimes even challenging your provider in terms of what your care is about. So tell us a little bit about that focus for you. Sure. Yeah. So I ended up um, really just because of fate and good luck, ended up at the VA medical center in my city about the time that the VA was going through a very, very bad 
rough spot <laughs> from a PR standpoint. So the news probably broke, I think it was the Phoenix VA around 2012, 2013-ish, that there were many veterans that were not getting care they were that they were scheduled to or referred to for specialty cares and things like that. And it became a really, really big issue. One, because there were veterans that were not receiving the care that they should have been getting. And then two, it just put the VA in a very bad light. And there was just a lot of negativity, both internally on the on the clinic, clinical teams and the staff that were working in the VA hospitals, but then also the, the, the other stakeholders, you know, the consumers, the patients, if you would, that they did, didn't really trust that the VA had their best interest at heart. So the VA at the time decided that what they really needed to do is spend some time investing in, really investing in developing strong relationships, both among the clinical teams and then between team members or clinic clinicians and clinical teams and the individuals who were receiving care. And they rolled out several initiatives. One of them was called relationship-based care. And the idea was that if you build a good, strong foundation of uh, relationships of empathy and trust among the clinical team, then that would carry over to the patients receiving the care. And I, because I happened to be in one of the leadership development programs at the time, I was tasked with leading the, the rollout of this relationship-based care initiative onto one of the wards in our inpatient, uh, inpatient hospital and then across some of the outpatient centers. So I was able to really take a first um, a first row seat, if you would, to watching what happens when real relationships are formed, not just this idea of um, we're going to develop, quote unquote, relationships or therapeutic alliance or strong patient relationships, and then really not doing anything with them. But really what happens when you actually care about the person sitting across from you, the, the person that's receiving the services, and how you can leverage that relationship into positive outcomes for, for patients, right? And I did that for a while and then realized that the reality was that relationships in healthcare were more fundamental than just in the VA and it had more applicability than just to a, a VA system or even a healthcare system that was in crisis that really healthcare is a relationship-based uh, encounter, right? It's one person that's skilled in the art of healing, helping another person on their own unique road to recovery. And I thought, well, man, there's there's got to be more application of this idea than just the VA hospital. And from then I left and did some consulting and was able to do a lot of work with, with private practices and with healthcare systems across the country, really around what we call patient engagement. Really what it means is uh, leveraging the, the human side, the human relationship side of healthcare to improve everything, right? Business metrics, but also the actual experience that patients receive when they're in the clinics and then the outcomes, the clinical outcomes that they have going forward as they leave. And that also prompted me to write the book that I wrote, which is called uh, Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare. And the, the whole idea is this healthcare being a real human experience and human experiences are rooted in relationships. Yeah, that's great. That's great, Rafi. You know, and that's really what we really need um, in terms of improving our healthcare systems. And particularly, um, you know, we focus at Healthcare Untold on people of color communities who really um, come with a 
somewhat distrusting experience um, with the their healthcare systems. And through a lot of community work, like community clinics, um, who really are based in the in the community and understand the dynamics of social determinants, as an example, yeah. of their lives, um, that becomes a really important part of a you know providers understanding how to approach their patients. Really, and especially the fact that you work with veterans, they come in with so much uh, you know trauma and really oh, understanding yeah. that and um, what happened to them during their military time is as important as to what they're coming in for, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm a big advocate of what's called the biopsychosocial approach to healthcare, which for a long time, probably the majority of, of the medical career, or the medical space, the, it's been rooted in what's been called a biomedical model, which is there's a there's a problem in your biology or your tissues or your muscles or, or whatever it is, something physically is going on with you or physiologically is going on with you. And if we find that thing and we fix it, you'll be better. Right. Um, the biopsychosocial model says, well, that's not entirely the case. And there's no better example than, than a veteran experiencing PTSD that they could have real physical symptoms that have nothing to do with a, a physiological problem. It could be entirely a mental health issue, like from exactly. a flashback, for example, of PTSD. And that can, that has been shown in research to lead to higher ratings or self-reported measures of pain, higher instances of dysfunction and disability. And this it's not like this person fell and injured themselves, broke their shoulder or anything like that, but they experienced a real traumatic event that's having repercussions causing physical limitations and physical symptoms now. So taking a biopsychosocial approach, really what we do is we, we take the person or the symptoms out of the equation. We focus on that person and we say, okay, this individual comes to us maybe with a diagnosis of say shoulder pain or rotator cuff disorder or whatever it happens to be, but this person has a lived experience and this past experience might be having real and, and unforeseen effects on what they're experiencing now, how they're experiencing it, even their trust of the healthcare system or the clinician themselves can affect whether or not they're going to participate in whatever their home program might be or whatever treatment plan or course of treatment is being recommended. And all of those factors can't be boiled down to the physical symptoms of an individual. So we very much try to focus on looking at the person in their context, in, in their environment, and kind of tailoring the healthcare service delivery to meet them where they're at instead of the other way around where we take this person that might have a rotator cuff injury and we could try to jam them into our framework for treating shoulder injuries, right? Right. And so um, today, you know, being an author of a book and also your own podcast, and just want to acknowledge uh, our yeah. fellow <laughs> podcaster, um, in your thoughts and your dreams of what we can do in improving healthcare, particularly as we come out of COVID-19, because the whole healthcare system is in recovery. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I met with my uh, OBGYN and she was, you know, saying a lot of the primary care doctors have left the system. And so yeah. we have this whole issue of provider burnout. And so as we go through this pandemic recovery, um, what is your hope for the future of healthcare? And it just seems to me that your work is so important for that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I have always said that my vision for, for healthcare, what I would envision if I had like the magic wand and could make it happen would be that healthcare would be 
um, a world where skilled, competent, and caring clinicians treat and serve engaged patients that take an active role in their health and in their in their recovery. So, a lot of times, what happens, and it's it, it's not really unexpected given the way our healthcare system is structured, primarily in the United States, where we've got this third-party payer, oftentimes is kind of dictating care. They're the ones paying for the service, but they're not the ones receiving the service. And that ends up causing some issues in incentives, right? The incentives just get misaligned somewhere. So clinicians, for example, are incentivized to provide as much billable service as possible because that's how they get paid, right? And then you've got the payer, the, the insurance company, that is incentivized to limit or cut as much cost, which is the service delivery, as possible so they can save money and you know profit from that. And then you've got the patient kind of stuck in the middle where they have an issue, a legitimate issue that they need treated um, and, and they need a, a solution for the problem, but they really don't know how to go about getting it. Healthcare is very skewed from a knowledge perspective in that most people receiving services just have a lot of unknowns. They don't know oftentimes how much it's gonna cost. They don't know how long it's gonna take. They don't know really what the treatment options are and then what the positives and negatives of each treatment outcome or treatment option is. So there's just a lot of variability and it's very difficult for a patient to look at a situation. And oftentimes what happens is because these clinicians are so pressed for volume because of the way they're being paid, they don't get a lot of time to educate their patients either. So the, the patient then comes in and says, okay, I've got shoulder pain for an example. And the orthopedic surgeon has 10 minutes to see them before they go see the other 50 patients for the day. And the orthopedic surgeon says, listen, you've got, maybe it's a partial thickness rotator cuff tear. And the research shows that we can treat it without surgery, or I can give you an injection, or I can give you surgery. Here's some here's some pamphlets. Read these, and then, then, then let's make a decision about what we want to do. And the patient themselves just feels very overwhelmed, especially if there's a language barrier or an educational barrier in the mix. Some of these words that are on these pamphlets are big. They're multiple syllables, and they it's just hard to understand what's going on, right? Unless you have healthcare training, when people talk about post-surgical precautions and contraindications and, and words like that, it can just sound like gobbledygook. Um, and a lot of that, in my opinion, stems from the way that we have healthcare structured from an economic standpoint, the way we're paying for healthcare, in that the incentives are so misaligned that unless something changes with the, the actual transaction itself, which is the individual, the consumer, the patient sitting down and receiving services from a clinician, there's there's really no easy way to solve it, right? So there, there are some organizations that have moved to value-based care, and we can talk about that later, but the fundamental problem is that there's an incentive misalignment in healthcare, and that incentive misalignment causes a rippling effect throughout service delivery, a patient's understanding of the care they're gonna receive, the cost of those services, X, Y, Z. So, if I was to just think, what do I want healthcare to look like? It would just be to re return the focus of healthcare to really where it should be, people, right? The people receiving services and then the people delivering those services. Because like you pointed out, if the people delivering the services feel pressed and crushed under the burdens of productivity or utilization or, or whatever metric is being used to dictate how they're getting paid, um, 
they're going to burn out and they're going to leave. And then you won't have clinicians that can treat the patients that need care. <laughs> well, you said the couple of words that, uh, and I also saw you had a podcast on it, which was value-based care, which was really looking at the outcomes of, of yeah. being paid for outcomes versus trying to get as many visits in as you exactly. could. Talk to our audience about what value-based care is. I kind of gave a, a real easy uh, definition. And um, how do you think that is working? And do you believe that's a direction that is uh, a positive one for healthcare? Sure. Yeah. Well, from a like a baseline definition, like value-based pricing is is either merit-based payments or merit-based incentives, or like you said, paying for the outcome. So what we currently have, or what dominates the healthcare landscape now, is what we call fee-for-service, which means myself as a clinician, I bill a unit for a a service, and I get reimbursed a fee based off of whatever contract I have with the insurance company but it's all based off the number of units or treatment units that I bill. So you can see that there's an incentive for me as a clinician to add as many of those units as possible in a given day, because then I make more money. Um, value-based reincentive or value-based payments or value-based um, reimbursement in healthcare would be some kind of either shared risk where the individual clinician or the organization is sharing some of the unknowns with the insurance company and that it gets very, very technical very, very quickly. But essentially what you're doing is you are taking on, instead of billing the, the insurance provider for so many units of treatment, you're providing care and you're trying to reach certain benchmarks and then based off of their criteria. So let's say, for example, that one of the easiest ones to, to talk about is either shared savings or, or lump payments. So shared savings would be Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, says, okay, for physical therapy, after a total knee replacement, the national average is 16 visits of physical therapy to recover for the patient to recover completely. Um, if you engage in a shared saving program with us, anything that is that you can provide that is below that national average, we will split a percentage of whatever that savings would be with you. So if you can treat the patient in 10 visits and get them better in 10 visits, then that's six visits that we don't have to pay for anymore, anymore and we will provide you or we'll give you a, a, a share in that savings, right? And that's one way that some insurance companies are moving more towards a value-based incentive or a value-based reimbursement system where maybe there's a fee-for-service component, but really the, the focus is going to be this shared savings. How, how efficient can we be in healthcare? How can we deliver the highest quality of service in the least amount of time so that the patient still gets all the benefit? We don't want to lose any of the, the positive outcomes, but we do it in a way that incentivizes, really it, it incentivizes the provider's to not overbill, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the other big one that's out there right now is lump sum payments, which is, okay, instead of paying you per unit of treatment, we're just going to look at your evaluation, the complexity of that, that patient, and we're just going to give you a lump sum. And it is up to the provider how they use that, that lump sum. Whether you see the patient for... Uh, 17, 18, 19, or 20 visits, or whether you see them for two visits, you're getting the same amount of money. So what it does is it, again, it incentivizes 
the clinician to be as efficient as possible because you still want to meet those outcome benchmarks. You, you can't have patients getting worse because right. you, you know they're only getting treated once. So there's there's outcome benchmarks that need to be in place, but they're trying to do it again, as efficiently as possible. And that helps everybody, right? The the clinician doesn't feel like they have to bill so much. So there isn't this um, productivity requirement or burden, if you would. The insurance company doesn't feel like they're on the hook for an unknown number of visits because they, it's a set cost. And then the, the patient is receiving the benefit of this incentive that is created that the, the clinician now wants to get you better as fast as possible, which means hopefully they're going to follow evidence-based practice. They're going to do the most effective and most efficient treatment, and then they could potentially save you a little bit of time. So instead of maybe having, I'm going to talk from the physical and occupational therapy world because that's where I'm from, but typical outpatient treatments are um, uh, 45 to 60 minutes. And the reason for that is because you can build three or four units of treatment, treatment units. When you do a lump sum payment, that some of that incentive goes away. So if there's anything that's being padded, if you would, or extraneous treatments that, yeah, are nice to have but not necessary, the clinician in a fee-for-service model is still incentivized to do it because if not, they can't bill for that time. Um, in one of these lump sum payments or value-based reimbursement systems, that incentive kind of goes away. So the it frees up the clinician to say, listen, you know, most of the time people treat this with 45 to 60 minute treatments, but the research shows that, you know, a 30 minute treatment focusing on X, Y, Z could get you just as good of an outcome. And it saves you 30 minutes of your time of your life in a given day. Mm -hmm. um, for, both that's, sides. for both exactly, sides. Exactly. Yeah. For both sides. So <laughs> it's a win, 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 right? Um, I've actually broken down this whole concept in the book. There's a, a chapter on value-based focusing on value-based care and stuff like that. And it is, I, I break this exact example down using treatment codes and fee-for-service fee model reimbursement versus value-based reimbursement. So if, if you're interested, go check it out in the book. Yeah. But that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to decouple this idea of, I'm a clinician, I need to bill so many units in order to get a certain level of revenue so that I can keep my lights on with, okay, I'm getting paid for the totality of this individual's care, and I'm trying to get them as good or as well as I can in the least amount of time possible in the most efficient way possible. And that's what moving more towards value-based care really should be. And really the, the vision or the goal is to do just that, right? Now, there's a lot of different problems in the way some of these are being done right now. And I kind of view it as um, they're, they're wrinkles that we got to iron out, but at least there are organizations out there that are trying, that are putting one foot in front of the other and trying to innovate our way out of this problem in healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, this is uh, so important because providers like yourself who are freestanding, um, it's a real difficult process in today's market. But at the same time, you know, using that human approach to the work that we're doing and coupling that with some potential support for the provider is yeah. so important because you can see my own experience if a provider is really stressed out about their own um, economy, so to speak, you know, what kind of care are they going to give? So it's really important for that back office function to support providers. And then also for that humanity in terms of keeping that humanity for that relationship building between the provider and the patient. And, you know, there's so many outcomes. If you have a trusting relationship with your with oh, yeah. your um, 
I almost want to call us consumers, um, that, you know, that just creates a better uh, healing process for both parties. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of research around the idea of the interpersonal interactions is a, the technical term, right? The interpersonal interactions that happen and occur between the, the client or the patient and the clinician and how they really do have a large effect on whether or not the, the patient adheres to their home program, follows, or at least is willing to uh, try some sort of lifestyle redesign or lifestyle habits. I'm thinking something like chronic conditions like uh, diabetes or um, even uh, blood pressure or heart disease, things where they're not going to, these conditions don't go away. So the, really the only way to get good outcomes is to get the patient to buy into this home program of maybe it's, you know, changing the diet, maybe it's increasing exercise, maybe it's avoiding certain stressful activities, whatever it is. Those are very hard things to do. And they're very hard things to get a, a patient to do. The research around whether or not it's successful, really, it's it's very fascinating to see the effect of just simply the client or the patient trusting the clinician and that how that lowers their their resistance to some of these changes. Not that it's still a walk in the park, it's still very difficult, but patients feeling hopeful about recovery, for example, improves clinical outcomes in the long run. So I think we can't underweight the role that clinicians play in giving those patients hope. (laughs) Yeah. And I really think that, you know, I've worked with a lot of physicians in my career. Um, Med school is so important to embed so many of these processes, right? I mean, one is that, you know, physicians come out with, oh my, oh my God, so much uh, debt. Uh, So they're really uh, struggling with that. Um, But I don't know, I'm not sure if the med schools have really embraced uh, really trying to one, ensure that people understand the business of medical care. And then two, the humanity part of that and what they, the new skills that they need, especially with issues of mental health and addiction. I just think that uh, med schools and other training programs for our providers could do us well for the future and ensuring new providers coming out with the tools that they need. Yeah. I think part of it is probably because of the, um, the just the sheer amount of knowledge that doctors need, <laughs> need, but there tends to be a big focus in any healthcare training program on the technical aspects of care, which are not bad, right? Like you need to know how to do your job. It's essential. essential. Um, But we tend to overweight the effect of technical knowledge. And there's, again, research that I uh, share in the book about the importance of those, what we call the soft skills of healthcare, the, the way we communicate, the way we build relationship, caring, empathy, active listening. You can take two clinicians one clinician might be light years ahead of the other one from a technical standpoint, maybe advanced degrees, advanced certifications, and the other one could be an entry-level graduate um, with, you know, they're still competent. Competency is the baseline. The competent clinician, if they're able to uh, actively listen, employ empathy, meet the individual where they're at, is going to score better on patient-rated uh, outcomes for experience and engagement, but then also there's links to clinical outcomes as well. And part of that is, again, because healthcare is a, is a human relationship. And if you don't like the person who's giving you care, you're not going to, it doesn't matter how smart they are, how great they are, you're not going to want to do what they tell you to do. 
That's right. That's right. Or under, even understand their language, right? Which well, exactly, is important yeah. for competent care. <laughs> yeah. Any last, um, you know, it's been, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Any last comments for our, our listening audience? No, I would just, um, I would encourage you, if you are an individual that works in healthcare, to really focus on the person sitting across the table from you or on the exam table or wherever they are in your clinic, um, the person receiving the care, they're a real individual that has their own unique set of circumstances and, and their context. And really, we got into healthcare to help people, to help people get better. And the only way we can really do that is if we stop focusing on the diagnostic, the diagnostic codes on the referral sheet and start looking at the individual in their totality. And then if you're somebody who's receiving care, or you you want to receive care and you don't know where to look or what criteria by which to rate or to to search for clinicians look for a clinician who takes the time to truly understand your circumstances and not just your specific diagnosis because the reality is every clinician out there knows or can look up your diagnosis code and kind of figure out the best treatment method according to the research Rockstar clinicians or the clinicians that you want to work with are going to be those clinicians that can look at you in your circumstance and say, listen, I know you've got XYZ as your diagnosis. The research shows that we should do A, B, and C, but I really want to know from you, how is this even going to work in your life? Because if, if this isn't going to work in your daily routines or your, your circumstances, then we've got to adjust it a little bit to make it work for you. And that is where what you want in a clinician, somebody that's going to tailor the treatment experience and the plan of care to your to your own set of circumstances and desires and goals and your desired outcomes. Beautiful. Well, on behalf of Healthcare and Todorov, we really want to thank you. And, and we really want to encourage the listening audience to uh, buy his book, Better Outcomes, and also listen to his show, The Better Outcomes Show, which I'm sure is on any platform. Yes, Rafi, wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> thank you. Gracias. Really appreciate your time today. Sí, gracias. Thank you. Healthcare untold. Healthcare untold. Healthcare untold.